This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year, on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. If you like this podcast and you want it without advertisements, head over to patreon.com and become a member of The Brian McClanahan Show. For 10 bucks a month, you get all the podcasts ad-free, including video, and you also get a special Q&A podcast. I'm only going to answer your questions, your listener-generated episodes, through those Q&As. So, head over to patreon.com, Get this podcast ad-free, no ads, not even things like this, and you really do help support The Brian McClanahan Show with really cool stuff on the back end. If you like this podcast, don't forget to follow me on social media. Find me on Twitter, now X, at Brian McClanahan. Also on Facebook, at Brian McClanahan. And on YouTube, where you can watch the podcast, at Brian McClanahan. It's a great time. I'd love to see you there. Historians can't figure out why nobody wants to study history anymore. And why no young people write anything good? Well, I'll tell you why on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Well, let's talk more about history. I was going to do something else with secession, and I'll get to that. Adam Sura. But... This article really piqued my interest because it it explains in a nutshell, without the author really knowing it, why no young people are really doing anything good in history anymore. In fact, he is the problem, but he doesn't see it. You see, the problem with modern history is that the people that are complaining that nobody wants to do it don't realize that they're the issue. And and it's clear in this particular article uh, how that is the case. So I've talked about the history wars a lot. I mean, look, it's the, it's the basis of the culture war in America. It's why the historians are running around trying to make everything about them. Because they realize that if the culture war becomes front and center, if it becomes the most important issue, then they become important as well. So this is why you have you know, John Meacham and uh, Heather Cox Richardson and others um, going around uh, saying that, look, uh, these things, X, Y, and Z, historical subjects, are the most important thing. This is why Nikki Haley is being asked questions about the Civil War and secession. 
because they realize that doing that puts their profession at the forefront because it's a usable profession then. You see? It's a usable profession. Now, for centuries, historians have thought a lot about this. What is the purpose of history? Why do we study history? What is it and why do we study it? In fact, it's taken up volumes of literature. Well, we know that history does have a use. I mean, we wouldn't study it if it didn't. We know even going back into the Renaissance period that it became useful. So you have this conflict going, coming out of the Middle Ages into the Renaissance period. And subjects became useful to make good citizens. And history was deemed one of those subjects that could do that. It wasn't a social science, even though this historian likes to think that. Uh, but again, I'm going to talk about who this historian is and how they are the root of the problem. It's not a social science. It is a humanity. It's the study of people through a lens of past experiences. It's the remembered past. So it's not a science where there's something usable about it in that way, where we can come up with a certain set of hypotheses, then come up to conclusions based on this. No, no, that's not what it is. It is akin to a literature. We don't consider literature to be a science. There's no science in studying people, even if the sociologists and psychologists and everyone else want to say that. But when you start studying the past and you look at, say, a work of fiction compared to a historical, a nonfiction telling of events, they're the same thing. You're telling a story based on what people did. And of course, you can draw conclusions out of that. It's not fantasy then. You can draw conclusions, you can come to an understanding, which is the most important part. We need to understand why things happened. And when you understand why things happened, you can make better decisions in the future based on that understanding of the past. But not in a way that would start to transform humanity. But you see, this is what everyone's being taught that history is. It's a social science that's there to be used and studied so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. I mean, this is what you often hear. But of course, the Greeks understood that history was more cyclical than anything else, that at the center of that was human nature, and human nature is really unchanging. You can trim around the edges, you can make changes, you can, or try to ch make changes, I should say. You can try to do these things, but at the end, people are going to do similar things in similar situations. So we study it for understanding. We study it to better understand ourselves individually and collectively. That's why we do it. And of course, to better understand our culture, our traditions, these are things that are important. But if history becomes simply a usable past, if that's what you have to do, then it's going to turn a lot of people off because in that realm of use, you're going to have politics infected. And so it becomes usable for all the wrong reasons. It becomes usable so you go to Monticello, and all you hear about is Sally Hemings rather than Thomas Jefferson. Well, you take your pick of any historic site. All you're going to hear about is the modern presentist use of history. Well, look how bad these people were. Look how bad this was. And of course, by doing that, you're supposedly drawing conclusions that we wouldn't want to do that again. And look, these people were treated terribly, or these people had these problems, so we should treat them differently, or this should be different, or these people are awful, so we shouldn't revere them. We shouldn't do anything like that. 
But that's what happens. And this is why people are turned off by it. There's nothing heroic about it anymore. I mean, that whole idea of heroism has now been debased to a point where it doesn't even matter anymore. There's nothing fantastic about history anymore. It's just the horrible. And this is where Edward Gibbon ran into when he started writing his Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, right? So, I mean, Edward Gibbon said history is little more than the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. But is it? I think that he was too pessimistic. History is an epic. History is more than the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. It's the, it's the heroism. It's the, it's the great things of the past. And of course, people don't, well, we don't want to talk about the great men anymore. That's just boring, is it? I mean, for, for a long period of time, talking about the great men created a nice cohesion when it came to, say, the United States or any place. Right? But as you start to rip that up, as you start to tear that down, you create cynicism. You create problems for our understanding of the past. And it's not that these people are infallible. Of course not. And it's not that you can't discuss some of the things, their failings or whatever they were. Or that maybe, you know, we take the founding generation, for example, because um, they're often a focus of historical inquiry. But these people didn't all get along. They didn't all like each other. There wasn't, you know, sitting around the campfire holding hands and singing Kumbaya. That didn't happen. But they were great men. They did great things. And great men can still have flaws. That is the Christian side of everything. We know this. There are no perfect men. And people that have had a firm understanding, a grasp of Christianity throughout their life understand that. You're going to see failings. You're going to see people make have, have problems. They're, they're, going to, they're going to fall. But yet they can still do great things even when they do that. In fact, that can maybe outweigh some of their failings, and I think it does, when you talk about the founding generation. And all of this, of course, is subjective anyways. What are their failings? That comes down to the present values of the person reading the history. If you place yourself in the 18th century, would any of these people have had the same kind of quote-unquote moral failings that we think they have today? They wouldn't have looked at it that way. So you have to understand history from the time that it is being presented. And I think that's important. These are also great people. Of course, you can see traits that we might want to say, well, they were great. Those traits are great then. Those traits are great now. And we should admire these people for these particular reasons. But people don't want to do that anymore. They're going back and looking at history as a way to attack the present. As a way... To, you, to have ammunition to attack their political opponents in the present because they sound a lot like these people, you see. And that creates a method of historical inquiry that is, frankly, embarrassing and no good. I mean, it's, it's awful. So let's get into this piece. It was published at uh, InsideHigherEd.com. Uh, and the title is, Can an Academic Discipline Exhaust Itself? It's by a man named Stephen Mintz. Now, Stephen Mintz... Um, is a pretty prominent historian in his own field. He's, he's a pretty old guy now, but anyways, he's in his 70s. Uh, but he has written a bunch of books about early childhood history. I mean, with titles like this. Huck's Raft, A History of American Childhood. Uh, Domestic Revolutions, A Social History of American Family Life. <laughs> Moralists and Modernizers, America's Pre-Civil War Reformers. 
the, a prison of expectation, the family and Victorian culture. So he's written about social and cultural history. And you know what he says? This is why people don't hate, like history, because we don't do enough of this stuff. I think in writing a lot of that, it's the reason why people don't like history, because they see it as pedantic and unimportant. They want epics. You go out and you look at the histories that sell at your Barnes & Noble. I can guarantee you Stephen Mintz's histories wouldn't sell there. But historical epics do. Popular histories do. You see, this is what Mintz is also missing. The popular is what sells. People like that stuff. Whether you're conservative or liberal, you like this stuff. And of course, we've got conservatives and liberals trying to write it for their own audiences. But that's the issue. But at the end of the day, they're all Lincolnian. So I mean, there's, there's that too. So let me get into this piece. He says, recently a leading editor at a major academic press said bluntly that she wasn't aware of any breakthrough scholars in U.S. history under the age of 50. In response, I mentioned several names of younger scholars I greatly admire. The editor wasn't moved. So we have an editor at an academic uh, press that there's no great scholars under 50. Yes. Because the people that are going to write for the academic presses that could be great, don't want to do it because of the incestuous nature of it all. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to go through that. Have somebody that you don't care about, that doesn't really know your, your topic, go and say, we well, need to do this. You need to do this. Peer review. Peer review means nothing anymore. It produces garbage over and over and over again. Now, the people that want to be careerists, they're going to try to do it. But most of what they're writing is junk. And it's junk because even though Mintz believes that we have really good academic historians, I'm going to tell you they're not. They don't know how to do research. They read the secondary materials. They think that what they're doing is new because they haven't really read much of the historiography. They only read the last the stuff produced in the last 20 years. And they think they've come up with some marvelous new area or field or something amazing. And it's junk. Now, Mintz is saying, well, maybe that's the problem. We don't have anything new to talk about anymore. Maybe all the interpretations have been flushed out, or maybe not in his area. <laughs> so maybe we should do more of Stephen Mintz's area, and that would be great because I do this stuff. It, I mean, see, he's, he's actually getting into what the problem is without realizing he's getting into what the problem is. He said, For the sad facts are these. The major U.S. history journals are receiving fewer submissions, and fewer of their published articles have had significant impact on the field. It's because they're all junk. And this was happening back in the 1990s. Journals were dead back then. The, the material being written in the journals was garbage. It's why, at that particular time, I made a determination not to go into the academic side as much. Not to do that. Because why would you want to read some of the stuff being produced in the journals and you have to know it and talk about it? I mean, going into the modern historiography was completely boring because it was all garbage. Pedantic garbage. And they all write about the same things and try to sound like they're doing something new, but they're not. And I look, I'll give you an example. Heather Cox Richardson comes up a lot. I mean, she's pretty prominent now, right? Ivy League educated, uh, written these great books on, on Republicans. She's simply regurgitating what the opponents of the Republican Party had said about them 
had said about them in a negative way and calling it new and innovative because she's saying it's a positive, you see. So the Republican Party to her is the left-wing party of the 19th century. Wow, what an amazing statement, considering that people said that back in the 19th century. And this is somehow new, and that they've created this new economy and this, Ham this Hamiltonian system. She doesn't use Hamiltonian, but this, this system, this a modern American economic system. Look at all the things they did. All these reformers, all these economic innovations. This is exactly what people were saying about them at the time when the Republican Party was doing all these destructive things to the Constitution, to the economic order. This is what they were doing. They were tearing everything down. This is what the populists were saying in the late 19th century. Look at all these things the Republicans just did. They created corporate capitalism. They created you know, crony capitalism. They created all this stuff. But of course, to Richardson, the thing that outweighs all of it is the moral side of it. Because from her view, in 2024, if it wasn't for the Republicans, we wouldn't have this great moral order that we have in America now on particular issues of reform, things that she likes, race, class, gender. Now, the populists would disagree with the class part. But to Richardson now, the two most important things are race and gender. You see? So anything else they did that's destructive or damaging doesn't matter because those two things are front and center. And aren't you glad we did all this stuff? The ends justify the means. And her mind. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Leading younger U.S. historians are much less prolific than their predecessors. This is true, but maybe some of the, I'll say this, maybe some of these people are writing in places that just aren't academic journals. They're doing stuff online. They've got online blogging now and online articles and other things. So people have other outlets that weren't available, say, 40 years ago or 30 years ago. This stuff didn't exist. So in order to be recognized in any way, you had to publish in the academic journals, and they're just becoming a lot less relevant because people just don't want to do it. That's part of it, I think. There is something to, say, to be said for that, too. Uh, not only are fewer new subfields of U.S. history opening up, but there have been very few radical reinterpretations of major issues or topics. Radical reinterpretations, because that is history to Stephen Mintz. Radical reinterpretations. Radical reinterpretations are the way we can say history is viable and important. A radical reinterpretation. When, after all, have you or I read a fresh interpretation of the Revolution, the Age of Jackson, the Civil War, the Gilded Age, the Progressive Era, or the New Deal, or even of slavery, reform, or family, immigration, legal, or urban history? This brings to mind the apocryphal quote attributed to Henry L. Ellsworth, the first commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office, that the work of the Patent Department must soon come to an end because... The inventive power of the human mind had reached its limit. So when have we had these new interpretations? 
Well, when you do, see, he's actually pointing out the problem. When you have new interpretations, the historical profession is so closed-minded, they don't want this stuff. I'll never forget years ago when a professor I had put up a diagram of Reconstruction studies post-Eric Foner and how the diversity of what people talked about narrowed to a point that everyone was talking about the same thing. They're afraid. Eric Foner controlled the journals. They're afraid to do anything that is controversial. They're afraid to do it because it's going to get you blacklisted by the profession. You see, the profession causes its own nightmare. In other words, the political side of it all causes it to where it causes has a has an effect where people don't want to do things that might buck the trend because they won't get hired unless you fit on the three by five index card of this is the you know thing of allowable opinions. Tom Woods has said this. You fit in that. You have a little different nuance than everybody else, but you're still saying all the right things. Imagine if you said, look, you know what? I'm going to write a history of the war, and I'm going to say the Copperheads were right. Now, if you're not a leftist and you don't make all the correct apologies in doing that, uh, you're going to be blacklisted. Nobody's going to hire you. You're just some neo-Confederate, right? This, but imagine doing this. And I'll give you an example of that. Now, she did eventually get a, a good university job and tenure-track job, but Cynthia Nicoletti wrote this book on Jefferson Davis's trial, Secession on Trial. It's a really good book. And in fact, when she writes it, she's pretty sympathetic with the Jefferson, uh, Jefferson Davis legal team. She essentially says they were right, but she has to apologize incessantly. It's, it's almost boring in the first part of the book because she comes to a conclusion that would seem to indicate that she actually kind of likes Jefferson Davis's arguments, the legal, the, the arguments of his legal team, that they're kind of right. I mean, she makes that point. She has to apologize for it. Why? Because of her audience. Because you've got a bunch of thin-skinned, non-intellectual academic people out there who can't kick around ideas, who can't really grasp the fact that things might disagree with them and that maybe people don't like them. Most of these people were antisocial nerds who nobody liked to begin with, and they are so thin-skinned that when somebody, I mean, somebody says, oh, that's, that's bullying, you're, you're bullying me. I, I can't do that. And so they, they lash out. They lash out. So Mint says, have we in some sense reached the end of U.S. history? Has the discipline exhausted itself? Has the time come for the field scholars to move in a very different direction? This wouldn't be the first time a scholar discipline has disappeared, undergone significant transformations, or merged with other disciplines. Examples include natural philosophy and cybernetics, not to mention those archaic fields now dismissed as especially unscholarly, like alchemy, astrology, eugenics, and phrenology. My fellow U.S. historians might well respond that historical inquiry is limitless and dynamic, not static, that previously neglected topics need to be re-examined and reinterpreted, that eventually new subfields will inevitably emerge, that even fields of study that seem well-explored can yield fresh insights as new theoretical frameworks and new evidence arise. Perhaps. Still, it appears that research productivity has slowed despite the fact that there are more highly trained academic historians than ever before. That's also a problem. People can't get jobs. Right? There's no jobs. 
They're cutting departments because of the political nature of, histor of the historical profession. You've got people in America that don't like historians because everything they do is political. Everything. There's not, it's not for the, for the uh, point of understanding. It's to tear things down. It's to tear society down. So you've got half the population in America really ticked off about the profession because they look at these people as a bunch of activists. And they're right when these people parade around and they have influence in the Biden administration and they write speeches for Joe Biden and they say these monuments have to come down. we got to radically transform this part of society. Everything here is bad. So you know what? Why do we need to understand history anymore? These people brought it on themselves. If your job was understanding, if your job was not to make value judgments on the present based on the past, or to make value judgments on the past based on the present, if it wasn't Orwell's 1984, people would probably be more interested in history. But that's not what we do. Every interpretation has to go out there and attack something that's traditional now. You see? There's no jobs because departments are cutting jobs. It's not... I mean, conservatives in particular don't want these people around. And of course... There are conservative or libertarian historians who are getting washed away with the rest. They're being lumped in with them. Because those, those historians are attacked by the profession itself, so they're on the outside anyways. But they're still being washed away with the rest. He says, perhaps we are indeed witnessing U.S. history's end. This disturbing thought brings to mind F. Scott Fitzgerald's observation about his generation, grown up, to find all gods dead, all wars fought, all faiths and man shaken. Rudy and King's edited volume, The Ends of Knowledge, Outcomes and Endpoints Across the Arts and Sciences, argues that humanities disciplines need to rethink their aims and ask themselves frankly and forthrightly whether their existing purpose is now complete. Has the time come to close up shop? After all, the disciplines as we currently occupy them are artifacts of the 19th century origins of the research university. He says U.S. history may not be the only discipline that's actually experiencing a period of unpro unproductivity and apparent lack of progress. King cites a number of other examples, including analytic philosophy, cultural studies, and even her own field, literary studies, which may help explain the drift towards scholarly activism. Scholarly activism. These fields of study are institutionally entrenched, after all. They serve as administrative units, are uh, reified by architecture and campus geography, and are maintained by various graduation requirements. But they may not be enough. Since 2012, when Mintz first arrived in Austin, my campus, arguably the nation's wealthiest public university, has shrunk the history department from 80 professors and instructors to just 54 today. About a one-third decline. When the baby boomers finally retire, we might well be far smaller. And there are people that are going to cheer that. Because they look at people like Stephen Mintz and they say, well, you're, you're worthless. There's nothing important about you. What are you producing? Look at the work that you're producing. Is this even valuable? You see, we've, we've conditioned people to think that history has to have a value for the modern day. It's not usable if you can't get a job for it on one side. And then the other side says it's usable only if you can be a political activist and run around trying to tear stuff down. So w why do we do it? He says, George Eliot brings uh, Middlemarch's conclusion with these, begins Middlemarch's conclusion with these evocative words. Every limit is a beginning as well as an ending. Perhaps the end of U.S. history as I knew it can be a launchpad for new ideas, methods, and paradigms. King calls for new systems and organizations of knowledge production that are 
reoriented around emergent ends rather than inherent structures. Inherited structures, I'm sorry. I'm certainly sympathetic to the view that we need to organize knowledge production in ways that are more uh, interrogative and synergenic, as well as more self-critical and self-reflective and more focused on ethical issues. He says, I can tell you what we need to be writing. We need to be writing uh, um, things about anthropology and demography and economics and political science and sociology. History served those things. He says, U.S. historians are especially well positioned to speak to issues involving contemporary childhood. Yeah, I mean, this is what we need to do. We need to go out there and do these things. We need to talk about contemporary childhood. One thing he said here that I think was really interesting um, is that he says that if you go out and you just expand the topic area, that's just scholasticism. But perhaps one of the major problems with the profession is that we're all writing about the same stuff, as I said all the time. In fact, this is what was brought up when I was a a graduate student by some of the professors I had. If we're writing about the same things all the time and the same people, what are we really doing? We're not expanding our knowledge. We're not expanding our understanding, which is the point of history. We're just trying to reinterpret everything, which of course history is going to do, but you can do that through other ways. And I'll give you an example. There's a really great book that came out a few years back by a man named William Belko. It's a biography of Philip Pendleton Barber. Now, most people have no idea who Philip Pendleton Barber is. And I would surmise that this is probably his dissertation at one point. So, William Belko writes this book on Philip Pendleton Barber. It is a fantastic piece of historical research. He goes out. It's a pretty good narrative. He writes a very good political biography. He goes through all the source material he can, all the primary material. He doesn't pass value judgments on Barber in any way whatsoever. He writes a good, solid narrative history. William Belko should have been put into a position where he could have gotten a top research professorship at major universities. William Belko was working at a small regional university and he quit to go and to do something else in the historical field. Because I think he realized that even when you write a good solid history like that, it's going to get you nowhere. It's going to get you nowhere in the academy because he wasn't saying the right things. Now, having a history of Philip Pendleton Barber is really important. Or there's years ago, there was a great history of Adonis Burke. Or you look at some of these things that have been done on individuals that nobody's talked about. When I wrote my dissertation, it was on a Delaware senator, James A. Byard, that nobody really talks about. These are the kind of things that need to be done. Not writing about Thomas Jefferson over and over, or Abraham Lincoln over and over, or George Washington over and over, or Martin Luther King over and over, or uh, you know John Brown over and over. You take your pick, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, go get your lefties. And people are going to write about them over and over. Or, you know, whatever the point is, these different areas over and over and over again to try to come up with some new interpretation. As Mint says, we don't have any new interpretations of these things. Well, maybe it's because we're focusing on the same people and the same things too many times. And we do need to expand how we think about what topics need to be covered. If you write a dissert, if you write a book or have academic inquiry on some of these other figures, 
you might get a different interpretation of what's going on in the time period that you're writing about. And there are several of these things that are just sitting out there. They're just waiting for people to do it. Just in the last few years, you had uh, the book Calhoun, American Heretic by Bob Elder. And that was the first major biography of John C. Calhoun in decades. Now, we can say there's, I mean, some parts of it are pretty good. Some parts of it, not so much. In fact, Elder has to make points in the conclusion of the book to where he'll get a job. Now, he did get a job. I mean, that, that, that got him a research job. It's, it's a huge book, right? And a lot of people focus, and Elder got a lot of press out of this, and you know, got him a tenure-track position. So there are these big figures that still need to be covered in ways that are perhaps new, but even there, was he really doing anything new or just writing an updated biography of an important figure? I mean, it had been a long time since anybody had done that. And there are still, again, lots of people, even the great men, who need to be updated. You need a new biography. You need something out there. And there's those things. But people don't want to do that. Stephen Mintz wants you to write about the history of early child care. Nobody's going to read that. And this is the problem. This is when Shelby Foote stood up and said, you know what's wrong with historians? They can't write anything. They don't know what they're doing. They can't write history to save their lives. They write stuff that nobody's going to read on topics that nobody cares about. And when you have Stephen Mintz says, well, um, the problem is we don't, we, don't, uh, we don't do this stuff. We don't, we don't get as uh, specialized as n- enough. We don't, we don't do that enough. And look at what he says here. But change inevitably entails trade-offs. If U.S. histories remain relevant, it must do more to connect the past to the present in meaningful ways. We have to have more activism. If history is going to remain relevant, it has to have more activism. It can't just be a form of understanding. It has to be more activist. That's what's crushing it. That's why people don't want to do it and why people are extremely turned off by it. Why are we talking about the war in 1860? Well, because... Stephen Mintz doesn't realize this is what's happening all the time. And it's the fundamental building block of the culture war. We have to do more of this. To address big conceptual, theoretical, and ethical questions, place U.S. history in comparative perspective, and engage students more actively in the learning process with activities and assignments that strike the students as important, pertinent, and meaningful. Now, I mean, people have been talking about this stuff for 40 years. What kind of assignments can we give students to connect the dots to the present? I mean, okay, yeah, we all, all historians want to try to do that. Well, you look at this, and you look at this, and this is why things are the way they are today. This is what we do. He says, it's not enough, in my view, to apply social science theories, models, and methodologies to, uh, to past events, even though I certainly favor using historical data to test and refine uh, economic, political science, and social, sociological theories. All of us who teach U.S. history 
do address topics that speak to the social sciences, from the treatment of indigenous peoples to slavery and its legacies, expansion and its connections to American nationalism and imperialism, labor and the rise of industrial America, the struggles of various groups for civil rights, social movements and cultural change, and economic inequality and social justice. There in a sentence is why people don't like history. All of us teach all this stuff. What about the great men? What about heroism? What about the things that really did make America unique? The Federal Republic, self-determination, these kind of things that people are proud of. When you look at all that stuff, look what you said, it's all the bad stuff. We teach all these things. We teach how bad all these people are. And of course, when we teach how bad all these people are, this is going to make people love history. You're forgetting. You're going to be demonizing a good chunk of American history. So why should we even care about it anymore? You've just fostered the revolution. But let's also produce, he says, a history that is more comparative and more attuned to theoretical issues, even at the expense of narrative and detailed description. So it's just about theories. It's about theoretical issues. We don't need the detail. This has been going on now for 40 years. People don't know anything. It's why you can go on to social media and say Hitler built the Berlin Wall and people believe it. Because they don't have any grounding in anything. They don't know when anything happened. This is all the funny stuff you get. Well, when, uh, who, who was part of the Civil War? Uh, and I mean, you get all that stuff because people don't know. They don't know. They don't even have the basic facts and concepts knocked out. So if you don't have a foundation, you can't teach any theories. Because all we've been doing for years is teaching theories. You see, Stephen Mintz is convinced that all the stuff that he's saying here is brand new that people have been doing this. This is exactly what they've been doing for 40 years, and it's why nobody likes history anymore. The old catechisms where you had to learn the, the facts, the dates, the names, that kind of stuff went out of fashion in the 1990s, and people didn't learn any of that stuff, and so you had no foundation. So how can you teach theories? How can you teach any loftier concepts when people don't even know when things happened? And who was involved? It's gone, right? The whole profession is gone. So I found this, this essay, I mean, self-awareness is gone in this thing. Stephen Mintz doesn't realize that he is the problem. That what we need for history to survive is more fact-based history, more narrative, more storytelling, expanding out the topics we can tell stories about that are fantastic and interesting and less demonization, less modern politics, less things that make people hate it because you're demonizing someone and it becomes boring. Less of this, all the stuff he says. We address topics that speak to the social sciences. Treatment of indigenous peoples, the slavery and its legacies, expansion, its connections to American nationalism and imperialism. Labor and the rise of industrial America. All these left-wing things. This is what people are turned off by in history. You see, that's the problem. So, if we do more of the traditional stuff, I can tell you people would like history more. I see it all the time. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.